I'd like to invite Brother James up here. Uh, Brother James, as you know, plays our bass for us. Uh, but he just got back a week and a half or two weeks ago from Beach Reach. And he's going to share with us some of the things that, uh, that happened while he was on that mission trip. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. So I went um, on Beach Reach with the UTM BCM. There's a few other BCMs there. So Beach Reach is a ministry in Panama City Beach, Florida. And so we just basically just give shuttle rides to people and tell them about Jesus. So um, we have a few different teams. We'll have the people on the shuttles. And there's a few different jobs on the shuttles. And then we have the people on the streets. They're talking to people, praying for people, handing out cards. And then we'll have people at the base. It's a pretty complicated setup. I, I was there last year. Uh, they'll take the calls, and then they'll assign the shuttles um so on the shuttles um we'll just talk to the people we'll see how much time we have and if we can we'll do our best to get to a gospel conversation uh, i was able to have a few um there's a lot of people they they say that they're christians and you're kind of looking at their their life and we're you're like huh so we just ask them about that, ask them about their faith, and then I notice there's a lot of people who think that they're saved by their works, and it's obviously not true. You're saved by your faith in Jesus Christ. So we do our best to share that and explain and use the scripture explain. Um, we prayed for a lot of people. I actually have some uh, numbers right here. We had 3,708 passengers. We had 1,903 gospel conversations. We had 2,148 people we prayed for. And there were 61 decisions, which is salvations and rededications. Uh, there was a lot of prayer. We had a prayer room as well. So... Um, Part of the night, we would stay in the prayer room, and then we'd go out. Um, one of my favorite uh, prayer things that happened on the shuttles, there's about six of the shuttles in the parking lot, and we didn't have anybody calling, and we were just waiting there. So we all prayed out loud for God to send us some requests, and right after that, every single shuttle left that parking lot. Just so amazing. Um, as far as salvations went, um, I was able to see some other people lead people to Christ, and I was praying for those conversations in the moment, so I was really glad that God used my prayers in that way. And actually, one of our guys from the BCM got saved on that trip, and that was awesome. So 
him and two other people we baptized in the Gulf of Mexico. So, yeah, that was my trip. It was a great time, and I'm very honored that God used me in that way. Amen. I, I, am, I am exceptionally proud of James. I, I have, you know, I, I think back into my college years and, and, uh, and just to see him used in such a capacity and his willingness and his, even his growth in, in the last just a little year and a half since I've known him. Um, he's grown so much in the Lord, and that's just a testament to his faith. And, um, and uh, so, James, thank you for that, that, uh, that, um, that brief capture of, uh, of Beach Reach. Um, James, James has a, he got a haircut, and I don't know if you noticed that or not, and I don't mean to draw attention to it, but in case you didn't notice, James again, got a haircut too. So anyway, uh, anyway, so great, great report. Um, as, as we move through this service, um, it is Palm Sunday, and I, want, I wanted to read for Scripture this morning uh, just a reminder of the prophetic words of, of, of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Uh, the, the whole 12 verses uh, really capture, uh, it sets the tone, kind of like that song did. It really sets the tone for us to appreciate what Christ did on our behalf. Um, the, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah prophesied beforehand um, what this week would look like for our Lord. And, and so I want to read that to you this morning as a, a contemplation uh, and then just an element of worship through the reading of the word. So Uh, Isaiah says this in verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry land. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, he hid, and we hid, rather, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and, did not, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed." All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, because he had, no, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what Christ did 
this week. The fulfillment of Isaiah 53, bruised for our transgressions, took upon us, or took upon himself rather, our sin and gave us his righteousness. Isaiah reminds us of that in the house of God as the word of God is read. So let's pray together before we to, to bring in the, the musicians again and worship through the music. Let's pray and uh, let's ask God to bless the time together. Father, we are grateful that you have allowed us to assemble in this, this worship this place of worship. Father, we are thankful and are, are, are reminded of the words of the prophet Isaiah this morning, of the work that you achieved for us on the cross. Father, the, the, the payment of sin was captured in the transaction. Father, the, the yielding of righteousness to your people was yielded as well. Father, we are who we are in Christ today because of the work that was done the week that we celebrate Palm Sunday. Father, as this week goes on, may we be reminded each day of the events that took place. Uh, may we be reminded that, that you willingly gave your life as a ransom for many. And Father, as you bled and died on the cross, you did so that we might be justified. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the offering that you gave of your son. That, as Isaiah said, it pleased you that your son would be given as this offering. It pleased you because you knew in return that you would gain many sons and daughters. So, Father, we, as counted among them today, as the sons and daughters of Christ, Father, we thank you. And as this worship is offered back to you as a gift, Father, may it be, may it be pleasing to you. May, may our hearts this morning sing songs of joy and, and of worship. Father, may we give back to you a portion of that which you've given to us. And Father, as really truly our worship is the only thing we can give to a king who already has everything. Father, may you hear our prayers. Father, may you hear our worship. And may you bless the assembling of your saints. Father, as, as we go about this, this hour, this solemn hour of reminder, now, Father, may you be glorified by all that we say and do. And we'll be very careful to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, and amen. May we stand together as we sing a medley about the cross. Jesus paid it all, oh, the blood of Jesus. And down at the cross where my Savior died, glory to his name. Let's sing together. Jesus. 
a few housekeeping things as you all turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 7 verses 51 through 60. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning with me there as we uh, prepare ourselves for the, the word um, proclaimed. A couple things this morning. It does my heart good to see Miss Lynn Brown in our church today up and walking about an amazing time. Miss um, Lynn, it's, it's really good to see you this morning. Um, and it uh, did my heart good to see you walk into the church. Amen. Amen. She thanks everybody for the prayers and, um, and uh, to, to know what you've gone through and to see you here today up on your feet and about. It, uh, speaks, it speaks really well to your healing potential and really well to the care that you got to your left. I'm sure Dr. Brown had a big part in that too. So um, I also want to thank Brother Norman for filling in for me Wednesday night. Um, I, 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 it's, it's not easy to do what I asked Brother Norman to do, and that was, I called him like five and a half hours before church and, uh, and, and asked Miss Linda to ask him if he could teach for me. Um, I went home early from work, didn't feel well, and went to sleep, and, um, and Brother Norman was, was willing, willing, first, first of all, that's the first word we get through, was willing and able to teach for me. And I thank, I thank you, for Brother Norman, for doing that. There's not, there's, it's, it's good for a minister to know that, that there's somebody else that can, that can fill in for him um, when he can't be there. And so to know that Brother Norman was willing to do that, it, was, it meant a lot to me, and, um, and I wanted to thank him for that as well. Uh, it's also, it does my heart good to see all of our visitors this morning, uh, our guests, um, especially a couple of my friends in ministry over here to my right. 
um, uh, friends in ministry and just friends in general. One of them is, um, is, is, uh, is a Michigan fan, so he's not perfect, but, but he's, uh, he's here with me nonetheless. And I'm, gr- I'm just grateful to see, uh, see my friends over here to the r- my right. And um, just don't tell Brother Paul that, that he's wearing a Michigan shirt, okay? Uh, we'll let Brother Paul slowly find that out. So, uh, by the way, I won't say your names because we're on TV and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to put you on the spot. But there are multiple Buckeye fans in this, this church for the record. And, um, and, and I, I praise the Lord for that because I need, I need that in ministry. I need that, that care and that support. Um, those of you that are Tennessee fans would wish I'd shut up and move on. Um, those of you that don't care anything about any of this wish I would shut up and move on. And so let's do that. We are going to be in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 7. I I isolated, I I drew out a a portion of of Stephen's sermon uh, for the context of today's message. The context of today's message is a continuation of the previous two sermons on evidence of resurrection. Um, it's, It's one thing to say that that, um, that we believe in resurrection, that we live in the hope of resurrection, and all of those kinds of things. But for the unbelieving world, for the skeptics and for others who, uh, who reject resurrection, um, it's good for us to also know the, the, the evidence of how, why, when, where, all those issues of the resurrection. That it's actual an event that happened and that it is supported by fact. First week we talked about this. We talked about uh, Paul, or rather Peter, and the apostles and their radical transformation. Uh, Last week we talked about the hundreds of eyewitnesses that bore testimony to the event. Uh, they, they, They literally saw, they felt, they touched, they ate with, they talked to the risen Lord. Hundreds of people just don't do that unless it actually happened. And today, I want to kind of pivot a little and, and kind of draw out another evidence, uh, uh, an evidentiary truth, reality, or fact uh, about, uh, about the, the fact that we live in a post-resurrection world. And those who bear the name of Christ, like the text that we're going to read this morning, will suffer violence. Um, it, it goes without saying that, that Palm Sunday, or I just start with there and go through the Passion Week, is, is a week that is highlighted. It's, it's, it's highlighted by extreme exuberance and, and at the same time extreme heartbreak. It begins with the coronation or the heralding of a king and it ends with him being buried in a tomb. And so it's consequential for us as Christians to know that if they did if the Lord suffered violence and if his apostles and disciples suffered violence, then his people eventually will as well. Now, when I prepared this sermon series several weeks ago, I did not intend for this sermon to follow the events that took place this past week against our brothers and sisters in Nashville. Uh, Many of you know the shooting that took place in Covenant School um, and, and how this school was specifically targeted for war. And if to, to be perfectly candid, to be perfectly honest with you all, there is a specific evil that is settling on our lands that is interested in isolating and targeting Christians more and more. That's just a fundamental fact that's coming from the statistics. 
It's coming from the manifestos. It's coming from all these different sources that are objective and verifiable. There is a war now being raged. It's being, it's being rendered against the Christian faith. All right? And as we go through this, this sermon this morning, it shouldn't be of any surprise to us. Now, it should, it should, it should sadden us. It, it, should, it should humble us in, in light of the, the events themselves. But that the evil that's upon us does not care about what it suffers us to pass. It doesn't care. What it does care about is the name whom we bear. And that takes us all the way back to the text today concerning Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So if you'll stand with me, I'd like to read this text with us together uh, in honoring of it. Uh, uh, Acts 7 verses 51 through 60. The Bible says this. Stephen, actually quoting in this text, says this to the Israeli or the Jewish leaders. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your, your fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, being the Jewish leaders, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at at him with their teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, He fell asleep. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this text. Father, as it solemnly reminds us of the consequence of faith in Christ, Father, we also rejoice in knowing that that Stephen's testimony today is one in which we partake, we participate. Father, we ultimately find hope in. Father, as we go through this sermon today, we are going to be reminded of some very difficult things. But that one of the evidentiary facts of being a a faithful Christian in this world is that that violence will come at your people. They killed your son, Jesus. They killed the apostles. They killed disciples that were raised up after. And they're still killing your people today. So, Father, encourage us through this text. Encourage us and give us hope in our faith that, that through this evidentiary fact that we can, that we can know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that we belong to you, and that we have been called according to your purposes. And Father, help us to rest resolutely in that fact as your children, as your faithful, who have come to serve you and to worship you this day. Father, in light of these things, we pray and we ask that you receive all the glory for what we've just read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Go ahead and have a seat. 
sermon kind of falls this week in the light or the shadow of the events of Covenant School, it does, it does necessitate a discussion for the fact that, that, that the next evidentiary point in, in our sermon series is the violence against God's people. It cannot be denied as evidence of resurrection. Just like the bold transformation of Peter and the apostles couldn't be rejected. You have to somehow rationalize that in order to come to a conclusion. People like Paul or Peter, rather, and the apostles, they don't do what they did for for lies and hallucinations. Likewise, hundreds of people don't just hallucinate the same thing at the same time. You, You have to reconcile that at some point in order to get past resurrection. Likewise. The violence against God's people that have been perpetrated for the last 2,000 years cannot be denied or rejected. It's true that those who heralded as prophetic voices in the Old Testament, those who heralded the coming of the Christ were persecuted for it. Those who witnessed the resurrection paid for it with their lives. And those who continue to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ today are becoming the most persecuted people group on earth. Now, skeptics would like to say that all religions are persecuted, and they're not necessarily wrong. But where they're wrong is in the fact that Christianity is the most persecuted faith on earth. This is an undeniable fact. Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Jews, they do not suffer at the rate in which Christians suffer. In fact, some of the studies that have been done about, done about this, according to Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs and places like that, say, are indicating that over the last 10 years, that persecution has risen to such a degree that it has already surpassed the previous 2,000 years of Christian history. More Christians have died in the last 10 years than they have in the previous 2,000 years of Christianity. 360 million Christians today live in what's considered high levels of persecution, facing hostility in 145 of the world's 195 countries. Imagine that. Now, I know here in America, we have been somewhat inoculated for the better half of, I don't know, three centuries from religious persecution. And that's mainly because a lot of the people that came to our country as immigrants were fleeing religious persecution. They wanted a place that they could worship and freedom. And so as our nation was established, it was was rooted. And I I don't care what the the skeptics say. It was rooted in Judeo-Christian values. The Constitution, the courts, all of those things were framed after the word of God. They wanted it that way so that people could worship God without fear. And in the decade alone, from 2000 to 2010, over a million Christians were specifically killed. Not haphazardly or accidentally or casually killed, but they were specifically chosen and targeted by radical groups for murder. All this to say that as we approach the Passion Week, we are given a somber reminder of what this week looked like for Christ. Week that was heralded as Hosanna and highest, right? The the, the son of David has come and our king has come and, and, and we are welcoming him into our city. 
But it didn't end like that. It ended in violence. And so uh, uh, Stephen gives us an outline uh, in your bulletin. You can find this in your bulletin. But he gives us an outline of what this persecution looked like. And I want to briefly go through these, 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 uh, these, these um, examples, uh, the chronicalized, captured moments of where persecution happened that Stephen literally accused the religious leaders of. The first one was that Israel had rejected the Holy Spirit. Verse 51. You stiff-necked, by the way, don't, it, this, when you say you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heart and ears, you're, you're picking a fight. People don't normally say that. I'll say it that way, right? Of course, that's not language we use today. But Stephen had literally been through the entire synopsis of Israeli rejection against God. From Abraham to Moses and on and on it goes, he went through this whole sermon of Israeli rebellion. And then he gets to this point where he just levels an indictment. And he says, you stiff-necked and you uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What's wrong with you? Why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? Why do you always think that you know better than God? Right? Why do you trust in your religion, you are, as sons and daughters of Abraham and Moses, why do you always trust that more than God? Why do you always try to work for your own holiness? Why do you always think that you're somehow better than others because of your genes? Why do you eventually, why, why have you, and this is, this is Stephen's words, why have you constantly slid into extreme states of legalism and injustice and partiality? Why? As Stephen says, they rejected the Holy Spirit. They, they rejected the Spirit's guidance in their lives. And it's well captured as we move on. The second thing, as evidenced by Stephen, is that Israel killed the prophets. Just as your fathers did, now you're doing the exact same thing. Rhetorically, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, which of the prophets, when speaking on behalf of God, communicating the messages of God, which of them did you not hate? Which of them did you not persecute? Which of them did you not try to kill. Now, the rhetorical nature of the question assumes guilt. Right? He didn't he wasn't looking for an answer. He was wanting to affirm guilt. Not only of the previous generations, but as a present generation who also did the next two things, which was kill John the Baptist. That's the third thing. So they rejected the Holy Spirit. They killed the prophets, and now they killed the forerunner to the Messiah. Verse 52, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Jesus said there was never a greater prophet that lived in all of mankind aside from John the Baptist. John was imprisoned, ultimately killed, because of his direct and unwavering message of repent, you sinner. The coming judgment of God is upon us. Repent of your sin. In fact, he was so bold that he called out Herod for his 
adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And when he called him out, Herod threw him in prison. And he sat in prison, John the Baptist, I mean, until Herod's new wife's daughter danced for all of them. It pleased Herod. And Herod said, you can have whatever you want. And said, Herodias, Herod's new wife, encouraged his daughter to behead John the Baptist. And so that's what happened. Israel's leaders, the king of Israel, executed John the Baptist over a dance. The prophet of the Messiah. Now, ultimately, this reaches a zenith when Israel kills the Son of God. And that's the fourth point. I mean, it can't get any worse, right? I mean, when you've, you've rejected the Spirit of God, you've killed the prophets of God, you've killed the forerunner of the Messiah, you, you, you can't get any worse, but yet seemingly they do. Then they kill Christ. But these same men that Stephen's accusing were the same men who made a complete mockery out of a trial of the judicial system of the day, They were there, and they heard Stephen's words. They also knew in their hearts, which is why when Stephen's words reached them, it reached them in their heart. They knew they were were a mock. They were were pathetic. These men knew that their efforts to kill Christ failed. They knew that their efforts to pay off the Roman guards failed. And consequentially, as Stephen's words hit home, upon hearing the immediate accusation of Stephen, they're cut to the heart, gnashed their teeth in fury. Probably imagine somebody like that once upon a time in your life, gnashing their teeth at you in fury or maybe vice versa. But what followed was a precedent that has not stopped to this very day. The religious leaders cut to the heart by a man holy and blameless and without fault, a man who says, look, I see the Son of God sitting at the right hand of God. And they stop their ears. They shut him up. And they ultimately, if I can use a modern word, cancel him. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it's the same methodology that is being used against Christians today. Whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Asia, or whether it's now in America. You testify to the Son of God standing at the right hand of God in power and great glory, and you do that with humility, and you do that with, 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 uh, with all kinds of grace and mercy. They gnash their teeth at it. They stop their ears and they shut you up. And now they're killing them. Same thing they did to Stephen back in the day. And that brings us to our second point. Violence against God's chosen people continues to this very day. Stephen was the first Christian martyr in Scripture. He was the first one who would go down to the grave for their testimony of Christ. Nothing has changed since then. Stephen was our first martyr. His fury filled the hearts of Stephen's audience. They rush at him. They drag him out of the city. And they throw stones at him until he dies from it. Imagine such a death. 
They throw stones at the guy until he dies. And his crime, what was his crime? Bearing witness to the Son of God. That was his crime. They hated him because he saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. They hated him because he pleaded with the Lord in his very dying breath not to charge his murder to them. Very reminiscent of the Lord on the cross, by the way. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Not wanting to charge their account or their, his murder to them. And Stephen's death, though, begins an insatiable desire by not just the Jewish leaders of the day to hunt down Jesus' followers, but it inspires this new generation of hate. Ironically, the first persecutor of Christians that we see in Scripture is Saul. Saul of Tarsus, who would later became known as the Apostle Paul. It was his feet that they laid their coats down so that they could get a little bit more flexible with their fastball. Shameful, disgusting, but yet here's Paul, nonetheless. In fact, the religious leaders charge him with an assignment to hunt them down, house to house, find these Christians and kill them. Find them and silence them. Find them and shut them up. Now, this same Saul, as we know, would come to the Lord in conversion, and he would ultimately die the very same death that he was instigating in the early church. In fact, he would die the very same death that Stephen did, just at the hands of the Romans instead of the hands of the religious leaders of Israel. Persecution started with Stephen. Persecution still filled the early church following, right? Because it's a natural consequence. This is what always amazes me about mankind today. Man, modern man is always that new breed that thinks that he has come up with something clever or creative or, or something spontaneous or something inventive or, or innovative or whatever the word is. And so they, 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 they do something that really is just a continuation or a doubling down of something that has failed already in the past. It's, it's a human instinct to be sure. It's, it's, it's the consequential nature of the human will. But this was certainly the case with the religious leaders' attempt to silence Christ. When they failed to silence him in his death, they failed to silence the guards, and they failed to silence Peter and John, which always makes me kind of laugh a little when I see Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and, and they, they're doing all these backdoor investigations, and then they finally come up to Peter and say, hey, look, don't preach in that name no more. Yeah, yeah right. Like Peter's, like that's really going to do anything. Peter and John immediately go out and in the name of Christ build the church. So they failed. And when they failed to kill Stephen, they continued to, same, to, to double down on the same failed logic that has been going on for millennia. Let's go to war against Christians. Let's get all the powers that be that we can and let's silence the Christians. In the early church, there was willing participants waiting in the wings to, to help. Herod, the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, eventually kills James, the brother of Jesus, and he seeks the life of Peter. The early church in Jerusalem goes, immediately goes underground, and then the church is scattered to the wind. It goes all over the place. And as it goes, it shares the gospel. 
only to be eventually hunted down by the Roman authorities. Nero being especially brutal to Christians. Nero being responsible for Peter's death. Nero being responsible for using Christian bodies as torches to light the streets of Rome. Burning down his own city even one time and then blaming it on the Christians that incited a persecution unlike anything that the early church had ever seen before. Persecution definitely filled the early church and violence today still continues against God's people. Persecution all around the world continues to grow. In fact, Christians today all over the world fear things like radical Muslim and this Buddhist extremists. You can't live in certain countries that are predominantly Buddhist or Muslim and be Christian. It's not allowed. It's against their laws. Pakistan, Iran, certain places of Indonesia. If you are in even certain pockets of India, you go into those countries and you're a Christian, they'll kill you for it. Christians, for generations, and even still today, are, are, are in fear of godless, totalitarian governments. Governments like China, who literally won't even allow you to have a Bible out of fear of what could come. In fact, writing Paul's writings, or rather John's writings in Revelation, indicate to us that it's the godless regimes and totalitarian dictatorships that will ultimately rise up in antichrist spirit against Jesus Christ. It's the governments of the day that are in extreme rebellion against God. Of course, it goes without saying, too, that social justice and social advocates in America are now doubling down on their efforts. That's what happened this past week at Covenant School. We have hundreds and hundreds of examples of how people in our country have become victim or fallen prey to new enemies of the faith, atheists. And I'll tell you this too, postmodernism is devastating our young people. This whole idea or concept of this postmodern world where there's no rules, there's, there's, this, there's, there's, no, there's no real morals or virtue, or there's no, there's no real objective truth. There's, this postmodern way of thinking is devastating our young people. I mean, our, our older generation of wickedness is really just preying on the postmodern mind to get what they want from the young people. It's a complete manipulation. But atheists, postmodernists, double down on their efforts to erase, literally erase any hint of God from our society. Radical social groups have endeavored to rewrite Christian principles that have made our nation great from the beginning. The modern feminist movement, the LGBTQ warriors, the social justice initiatives have wreaked havoc, havoc, on basic fundamental hallmarks of a civilized society. I mean, my goodness, our halls of Congresses can't even assemble anymore without interruption and disruption and all kinds of chaos. You go out into the streets and it's just organized chaos now, citing rallies and riots and all kinds of things. 
because of an ideology. Even in our own faith, liberal theologians are attempting to discredit and rewrite the gospel of Jesus Christ into being little more than just suggested reading or raking it over the coals of humanistic or man-made critique and criticism. And my goodness, you go out into the theological world today, you go to the Bible bookstore and you pick up a book. You don't know whether that book's accurate. You don't know whether that book's true. You don't know whether it's safe to read. You, you don't know anything about it because these authors now, these, these theologians and, and all this stuff have gotten really clever at taking a piece of the truth and then hiding it or shrouding it or wrapping it around all of these social issues. When in fact, it should be the other way around. It should be social issue wrapped in the gospel. But we don't do that anymore. Theologians don't do that anymore because they sit in ivory towers and they think. And they think. And they think. And that's all they do is think. They think they're clever. They come up with some innovative, creative little thing and they think that they have to tell everybody in the world about it. So they're adopted in our churches, they're affirmed in our convention meetings. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is torn asunder. Now, this war against Christianity, as I said earlier, is unique to the faith. It does bear the testimony to the truthfulness of the doctrines. I mean, Satan and his evil demonic cohorts would not go through such an effort if Christianity were untrue. Consider that for a moment. Satan would not waste his time. He would not go to the extent that he's going to if Christianity were just some other religion in the world. I mean, he would not bother himself otherwise. Additionally, he would not partner with, with, with and work through, if you will, every other religion or governmental structure or big corporation or modern educational institution or science or technology or social media or news reporting agencies or anything from within Christianity to achieve what he's trying to achieve today. Why would he do all that if there weren't something to stop? At some point in this discussion, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Why is he doubling down so hard? Why is Christianity so strongly opposed and more specifically targeted than any other religion? Why? This, this took place this past week. We all saw this literally play out in our social media feeds and everything last week. Why is the violence against Christians undeserving of any kind of sympathy, headline, or reform? Why are Christians wholesalely slaughtered in places in Africa and Asia and it doesn't even get a news headline? Governments and military institutions over there are not doing anything to help them. And and Christians today are getting the same here in our country. They can be targeted. And the targeter, the offender, is now the victim of the crime, not the actual victim's. Why is violence against Christians so undeserving of just sympathy? I mean, we sympathize. I mean, we sympathize with one another because that's the natural instinct. But, but all of the, 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 the forces that are at B in our world, they don't care. So there's no headlines and there's no reform. Too many, we deserve it. 
Why are secular institutions so empowered to mobilize against individuals who bear the name of Christ? Why? And the simple answer is because we bear the image of the one who is resurrected to power and great glory. We ultimately remind the wicked world of the holy, righteous judge who awaits all at the final judgment. They target us because they hate him. And Jesus even told us that, right? When they persecute you, know that it's not necessarily about you, it's about me because they hated me first. Passion Week is a reminder of this Christian reality. That we have a kind of a duality of, of, of partnership with Christ. First, that Christ suffered on behalf of his people. That's what Passion Week is a reminder of. Look, we, we're going to assemble around this table here in just a second. We look at these, these palm trees and we're reminded of Hosanna. The coronation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as... Sunday turned into Monday and turned into Tuesday and turned into Thursday and turned into Friday. Passion Week is a reminder of the violence Jesus suffered on behalf of his people. It's a solemn reminder that redemption is a bloody business. That's what it is. It's a sober reminder that what it took to secure salvation for God's people. And to be honest, it's a sufficient reminder that our salvation has been secured because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it's a reminder of. The violence that Jesus endured, the injustice of it all, when you consider what Jesus endured, you know, we see injustice being carried out today and it it offends us. It offends us because the institutions that are designed to execute justice have failed. And we're offended by that. Jesus suffered an extreme injustice at the hands of the religious leaders. They mocked his name. They mocked his character. The Lamb of God mocked by his creation. They brutally beat him to shreds, turning his back into a meat grinder. He suffered the shame of the cross as he hung there naked, as he hung and in, 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 in before all the world. And the shame that he endured as the Son of God on our behalf. He became a public expect- spectacle of all those in attendance. Now, it's important for us to remember that he did so willingly. Scripture says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it willingly. And as we read from Isaiah 53 a while ago, it pleased the Lord to offer his son in such a way because that that God in that process knew what would be accomplished by offering his son to, to die in place of sinners. That one day you and I would be able to stand before Christ, stand before the Lord, justified from sin. We'd be able to live in the freedom, in the eternal life that is given to us by Christ. 
So Jesus suffered violence on behalf of his people. And in conclusion, we are to remember that his people will suffer violence on behalf of Jesus. That's what we're up against. And it's war, right? This, this is what it is. And if you, if, you fail, if you fall short of any other declaration, Paul told us this was spiritual warfare. It's actual warfare now. We're not necessarily just wrestling against the powers of powers and principalities and spirits and all that kind of stuff. We're actually wrestling against activists and radicals and fundamentals. So it should be of no surprise to us that if Jesus suffered violence on behalf of his people, that his people will also suffer violence on behalf of him. We shouldn't be surprised when we see news headlines like the one we saw this past week. When Christians, nine-year-olds, nine-year-olds are hunted down like animals because they go to a school who bears the name of Christ. shouldn't surprise us because the depth of evil and wickedness that we're working here will go to such depths. shouldn't surprise us that those who bear the name of Christ will suffer and die at his reproach. shouldn't surprise us that the levels of hate against us are increasing. I mean, to the point that I've had conversations here about how to better secure our facility because that's what we're up against. And I told several this week that Jesus said in the scriptures to be, as he sent his disciples out, and he said, you're going to go out like lambs, or rather sheep to the wolves. He told them to be two things, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. He says, you be merciful, and you be kind, and you be loving, and, and you be all the things that I'm asking you to be, but I want you to think like them. I want you to be one step ahead of them, because if you're not, if you're not, they'll get you. That's what it means to be wise as a serpent. You have to think like your enemy does. It's a shame that we have to do that. I mean, my goodness, I can't believe I'm even saying that from a pulpit. But that's where we are. We all know that. Shouldn't be surprised when we're scoffed at and we're spat upon and we're ridiculed. It shouldn't be surprised when we're more and more increasingly so, many of us will probably go to jail for the testimony that we bear. I just hope that You'll make my bail when the time comes, by the way. I joke. I'm kidding, of course. Kind of not. I really would hope that you would put up the money, that that if if I end up there, you'd you'd help me out. But if you don't, I understand. But they're already putting my brothers of the pulpit, of the cloth, in, in prison, in jail. They're already doing that. And so as it increases... The intensity of it, the frequency of it increases. We should not be surprised. Shouldn't be surprised when they bring our bodies to be tried into the courts, burned at the stake, or hanged on the gallows. We should not be surprised. If they did all these to the Lord of glory, they will do it to us too. This is the testimony. This is the evidence of resurrection. Violence against God's people is a reality. We have to come to live with it. But the evidence of resurrection is same nonetheless, that they sought to kill the one who gives life, and because he lives, we do too. So they seek our lives. 
The evidence of the violence that fills our world against Christians testifies to this end. We just have to be ready for that. Skeptics have to somehow explain that. About how resurrection gives life. It gives power. It gives hope. And you and I this morning bear witness to that. Now that's not to mean that we walk around in fear and trembling. That we walk around worried and that we walk around. No, it means that we walk around wise as serpents and gentle as doves. That's what it means. Love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love Love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it to the glory of God until he calls us home. Amen. And that is the sufficiency of the matter. It's true. It's somber. Even as we prepare ourselves for the table, we're reminded that it's just the nature of it. But we know that as he was last week, we talked about this as he was. So, too, will we be in glory. Let's pray this morning as we close. Let's bring this to an end with our prayers as Brother Richard comes and the musicians come. And we open up the altar for a moment of invitation. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. God, I pray that, that through the preaching of this word, Father, that not only will we, we be brought into remembrance of the things, the work of Christ, but that we'll also be reminded of the, the, the Holy Spirit's power that dwells within us. That through the power of resurrection, Father, we have hope and we have joy and, and, and Lord, we have life. That, that though the news headlines are bad, that, 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 that the targeting and the violence against Christians is increasing, Father, we know that your purposes, that your plans, that your wills are perfect. Father, we trust that. Father, whatever may come, whatever, whatever you may allow to happen, Father, you are glorified by all things. Father, that even in evil, you can turn around and, and, and take that and use it for good. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, just like you did in the book of John, chapter 17. I pray for, for their, in, their, 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 their power. I pray for their boldness. I pray for their instinct that, that you have given to them as Christians to, to speak the truth and love and compassion, but to be bold about it, to be, be, to be unforgiving about it, to be immoved in such a thing. Father, until you call us home or you return, Father, may you be glorified with our lives. And as we open this altar of invitation, may it be done so in accordance to your will. And I pray this in Christ's name. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Father, Son, and